Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Thanks for tuning in. Kim and Phil delivering you the latest World Nomads podcast. And we're exploring Oman in this episode. It's an up-and-coming destination, Phil, and a country not everyone is talking about quite yet. So we're featuring the destination. It's almost ironic to help inspire you to visit this place before everyone else does. It's just a little secret, okay? Look, it's just a, it's only a small country. And, it's, of course, it's in the far southeastern part of the Arabian Peninsula. It has got, count them, four UNESCO World Heritage Sites. They breed the best Arabian horses. Uh, coffee is the national drink. And frankincense trees grow there. I didn't know frankincense grew on a tree. It's, they Until, do. I've uh, seen pictures. Okay. Well, there you go. In fact, every house is scented with frankincense. And, you know, once it was the most precious gift that was only for royalty. But uh, now you can go grab yourself some frankincense in Omar, Oman. Uh, and the reason it's a bit of a secret is it was only opened up to foreign travellers about 20 years ago. So it's managed to keep most of its old traditions alive. Yep. In this episode, we'll hear from photography scholarship winner Jake Sailors. His photographic assignment was to explore this or the historic town of Musket and its surroundings. We'll also find out what he's up to six years after winning the scholarship. And we welcome back Sarah Duff, who chats about her 10-day circular road trip around Amman. She's got some great tips too, combining unmissable sights with a mixture of off-the-beaten-track adventures, including snorkelling. And that is just the start. No. All right, let's kick it off. Our first guest is Rama Khan, who grew up and still lives in Oman. And we start the conversation by following on what we discussed in a recent episode with uh, Eric Maddox about what is the Middle East and what isn't, and the idea or the misconception that uh, perhaps it's not safe in that region. Oh, yeah, it's a stereotype, I believe, you know, that Middle East is not the safe place. But you know what? Take my word. It is one of the safest places to travel in the world. I mean, people should move on now. <laughs> this is not, you know, this is not Syria or this is not, not Palestine. This is a very developed part of the world, and which is, I mean, attracting a lot of tons of tourists every year. It, it pretty much clearly shows that this place is safe. That's why a lot of people are coming here. And a bit like the UAE as well. Um, uh-huh. There's quite a lot of freedom of expression for women who are uh, living there as oh, well. Oh, yeah. 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 You would feel like that you're in a Middle East or in a you know, Islamic conservative country when you're in the UAE because there's a lot of tourists, of course, and I mean, the government, they have given all kind of freedom to the people. You won't see any kind of, you know, conservative Islamic values being, you know, forcefully imposed on the, not only on the locals, but on the people, on the tourists who are coming to the country. So in that way, it really has given tourists a huge uh, way to attract the tourists, I mean, because they have given all sorts of freedom a person would look for in the country when he travels. There's no, there's nothing to stop them, you know. It's only, actually, there's only the one month of Ramadan, which is the fasting month. Muslims fast in that month. So yes, there's a tiny bit of restriction in that month that you cannot eat in the daylight in public. You can only eat at the designated places. And, you know, the party thing and the cinemas, they go all off during the daytime. But I think apart from that one month, all year round, UE is a big time party. So, so Rama, are you saying as a tourist, uh, Ramadan is probably a time to avoid Oman? Or is it okay if you are Christian to, to eat in public during mm-hmm. the day? 
Um, well, you know, it really depends. For someone um, who, is, who wanted to come to Oman to maybe, you know, have more interest in like quality things and for more entertainment he's looking for. Well, in that case, I think Ramadan should be avoided. Yeah, but then after sunset, it's a different story when... <clears throat> Definitely. I mean, then the comp- after sunset, the scene changed entirely. Because it becomes so lively after, you know, when the people, they have broken their fast and they are all energized. So we have late night Ramadan markets and all the restaurants and the malls, it's open until very late in the morning. Some of the restaurants, they are open until maybe 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. in the morning as well. And there are these giant cafes where people are just sitting in late hours or watching football. You know, the Omanis here love football. And it's very, what do you call it? It's it's very much happening in the uh, evening during Ramadan. All right, Rama, this is your part of the world. This is your home country. What is it that's, yes. that's amazing about it? Why why do you love it and why should other people love it? Well, you know, I must say Oman is the best kept secret of Arabia. You know, there are plenty of reasons to visit Oman. And of course, there's a lot more to do in the country than the desert safari. You know, because when we talk about Oman, the only thing an average traveler from the West would think of, okay, it must be like all desert and there will be those bedouins, you know, riding camels. But hey, no, that's not the complete reality. Oman is one of the most naturally diverse countries in the Middle East. It has a long stretch of 3,000 kilometer coastline. And I mean, that offers tons and plenty of water activities and that to all year around. And uh, apart from that, Oman is also home to the largest, uh, to the highest mountain peak in the Arabian Peninsula. It's called the Mountain of Jabal Shams, which also happens to be the second largest Grand Canyon on Earth. I mean, that's pretty much interesting, right? Yep. Yep. And Oman is, you know, uh, there's also the second largest cave chamber of Majlis al Jens in Oman. So what I'm trying to say here that for an adventure lover, a person who's into adventure travel, Oman is a heaven. I mean, for a traveler who wants to just come here and do all sorts of adventures, you know, you name it, we have it. There's plenty of diving opportunities in Oman. Even the capital city of Muscat, it has, like I can say, more than 10 or 15 islands or diving sites, just in a very close vicinity in Muscat where you can dive. And the marine life in Oman, I mean, it's very diverse. The marine life here is something which is not to be found anywhere else in the Middle East. So for diving, for hiking, any sort of adventure, Oman is the best place to be. The culture and history also, that it's very vibrant in Oman. Uh, the Mus- capital city of Muscat, it is home to, you know, the 16th century forts, which were built by the Portuguese, who used to come to Oman for purpose. Of, I mean, that was, it was not Oman during that time in 16th century, but they have built those forts. Uh, they have built many forts around the city, which are a huge iconic uh, tourist attraction in the capital city of Muscat here. And not only that, what makes Oman really different from, you know, it's more happening neighbor, Instead, the government have maintained its laid-back vintage Arabian vibe in the country. You know what's surprising? There's not a single skyscraper in Oman. I mean, if someone is coming from UAE and he suddenly enters into Oman, the scene entirely changes. You won't find a single skyscraper here because the government here, they believe that they have to stick to their Badiun Arabian values and they don't want to modernize in that way. I mean, they want, don't want to make it a concrete jungle, you know. Mm-hmm. So the skyline here is it's old wipe of Arabia, you know. 
which you have was fascinated like in the Arabian Nights or that kind of thing. So that's pretty much interesting for the people who come here. You mentioned that it's a, a great place for adventure. I believe that it also has, and it's fairly new, one of the toughest ultra marathon races. Have you come across this? Oh yeah, it was recently there was a marathon race and it was all across these mountains and running through the crazy Grand Canyon. And you know, the weather in Oman, it's pretty much crazy. I mean, it's only hot or very hot. That's yeah. what we call it over here. <laughs> but in spite of that, I mean, it was, it was very interesting to see people, I mean, running through this damn hot weather, sweating themselves around, running across these mountains and these wadis, we call it wadi here in Arabic. Uh, Wadi is basically a small spring in the mountains, but it's pretty, very pretty and beautiful. So yeah, very recently there was this marathon and these kind of races happening over here. And I mean, yes, I mean, that also it's attracting a lot of people from all around the world to Oman. I mean, I don't think so. Anyone would have imagined running across deserts and mountains and scorching heat. Yes, people do exist who actually like that, and, and which is great for the country, you know. Now, your blog, The Sane Adventurer, we'll share in show notes. Tell me about the right. name, The Sane Adventurer. <laughs> well, it just came from, you know, that I love adventure, I mean, to be honest. That clearly shows in the name. And sane is because uh, I want to do adventures with sanity. You know, because millennials these days, they're so crazy that just for the sake of a single selfie, they'll be just, you know, willing to give up their lives. And that is pretty absurd. And I really hate that, to be honest. So, yes, the purpose of the same adventurer was that I want to talk about adventure, that what adventures you can do and what you should do, but with a hinge of sanity. You have to do with all sorts of security, you know. And being a figure when you're trying to, you know, attract people to do adventure, so it becomes really a huge responsibility, I believe, on my part that I should tell them that this adventure can be done, but you have to follow this, this, this security safety measures. That's very important. And we like that. Well said, Rama. It was in our last destination episode featuring Namibia that we spoke to Jigaganatra. Now, he was a film scholarship winner in 2017 and he has now gone on to launch his own business, Halicia Travel. Now, he takes aspiring photographers and filmmakers, gives them authentic experiences and connections with locals in different parts of the world, but he particularly focuses on Africa. So... As we say with our scholarships, you can turn your passion into a profession. Here's the man that went on a photographic assignment to Amman as our winner of the photography scholarship in 2012, Jake Sailors. Did I get it right? (laughs) You got it right. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, It's, you know, I I was telling my friends earlier that, that this is my favorite thing to talk about. Uh, you know, the experiences that, that, uh, I've been able to have and travel and, and, uh, I, you probably won't be able to get me to shut up. You know, I think by the end of it, um, I, I had a, it was life changing to, to take a world nomads trip. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to talk to you guys. So how did it change your life? You know, for the first thing that I think it did was it, it, it was a huge piece of validation for me in my career and knowing that I was going in the right direction and that like somebody out there, Jason Edwards, who was the photographer for the trip, uh, recognized uh, uh, my talent and he saw in me that I could, I could do what he was doing or something similar to it. You know, I guess I was uh, 23 at the time. 
I'm pretty sure I was having somebody of his stature reach out from the masses and, and pick me was was such an, a monumental thing to happen to me to show me that this was something that I could do. I, I have continued to pursue photography. Uh, I do a wide variety, uh, still a lot of uh, natural world uh, landscape stuff. Uh, I also uh, do, you know, uh, weddings and um, corporate stuff and events. And, and, and there's a lot of things that, that, that you do to kind of make it make it happen. Well, tell us about Oman. You went there, as you, you mentioned, Jason Edwards, your mentor. Um, he was from Nat Geo. He's Nat Geo yep. photographer. Um, what was it like? We uh, were going from the second week on the ground. You know, I met Jason at the hotel. Uh, I got there a couple hours before they did. And I don't even think that they went to their rooms. Uh, we just went out in the field like that. And immediately I kind of got the understanding of, of the intensity and, and what was required and, and, and the energy that like went into capturing uh, what we wanted to capture. When we first got to the uh, hotel, what we went to first was a bullfight uh, in downtown Muscat. You wouldn't have seen it from like a main road. He knew somebody and, and all of a sudden we were in this like big, big uh, space kind of uh, in the middle of, of the city. And there were these giant bulls who locked horns and pushed against each other as a uh, crowd of people screamed and cheered around them and bet on who was the strongest bull. And we were doing that like 30 minutes after we had met. We were out there. <laughs> you know, shooting. So what was your expectations of Amman? What did you know about the place before you went there? Not much. I really didn't know much. You know, I knew it was in the Middle East. I knew it was an Islamic country. But from a historical perspective, I, I went in pretty open-minded, not knowing what to expect. You know, the people were incredibly kind. Everybody I met was, the hospitality was was very high. And, and, and there were awful people who invited me into their homes. You know, but I, I didn't know. I, I, I went into the experience not not having much expectations. See if you can set me right. This is my expectation. I've never been there. I don't know. I had seen your essay and what have you. But my expectation probably aligns with something like the movie uh, Lawrence of Arabia. Nice. Yes. I think I think that was that that was my sense of what a Middle Eastern country would be. So I'd never been to a Middle Eastern country before. I'd never been to kind of a desert place like that, and it certainly looks like that. You know, it looks like that movie. It was one of my. I'm very happy that you brought that up because this is one of my favorite movies of all time. The sand, the wadis, the the the, um, the places like kind of these giant valleys that the water occasionally runs through were fascinating and they definitely remind me of that movie because that was like a big thing. So you said it was your first visit to an Islamic country. Earlier we spoke to Rama who lives in Oman. We talk about stereotypes. I'd be interested as an American going to an Islamic state in 2013, which is when you went. Did you have any preconceived ideas of what it would be like? Sure. I mean, I I imagined uh, uh, that there would be certain aspects of the culture that were more cloistered. Uh, you know, I expected to see women in burqas and I expected that going to be bars lining the streets, you know, like I understood it as an Islamic country, one that was more conservative. I, I might've expected people to be more unwelcoming because of that, but that was, it was the complete opposite. Yeah. I actually spent 
a week after I left Jason in Oman, some of the people that I had met the first week, I re-met up with them and they showed me their world just because they wanted to and not, not for any kind of personal benefit at all. You were able to put your camera down pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, and, and, and I think that, um, you know, the interesting thing is, is Oman is a desert country. And so from a photography standpoint, the times to shoot were early in the morning and late at night uh, or in the evening. And uh, so from like whatever, 11 to four, it was too hot and too bright to do anything. But during those times, I did happen to put my camera down and meet up with some people and go to their homes and talk to them. Yeah, you know, it was just, it was an incredible place. Do you have a favorite photograph of yours from that time? Yes, I have a, probably a, a photo from that bullfight. I took it within an hour of meeting Jason, and I have a giant print of it on my wall. That's, you know, even though it was one of the first photos I took, it really spoke to what the whole trip was and what I saw. It's definitely one of my favorite photos that I've ever taken. Will you do me a favor? Will you do me a favor? Will you take a selfie standing in front of your photo on your wall? I will. I'll, I'll take a selfie in front of it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's in my apartment, and it's the first thing people see. All right. Well, make sure you do it landscape. Not that I want to tell a professional <laughs> photographer <laughs> how to take a selfie. <laughs> and you, you mentioned the fact that, you know, Amman is desert. Very shortly we're going to be chatting to somebody about snorkelling on the uh, islands off Amman. So it seems yeah, like a country that's scuba got... scuba diving. It's the first yeah. time I ever went scuba diving uh, was in Oman. We well, didn't see Lawrence of Arabia <laughs> strapping <laughs> on a scuba tank, did you? <laughs> no, I've, I've been in the water off uh, Dubai and I imagine it's pretty much the same temperature, water temperature as in Oman there. I'm surprised the fish don't come out already poached. It's warm. It's very warm. It is, yeah. Um, I guess they've got currents and stuff that keep the water cool, but it was, it was very, like I, you didn't need uh, like a wetsuit or anything. You know, it was it was bathwater temperature almost. So Amman, a place that you would recommend and obviously life changing for you given that scholarship win. Yeah, it was. I would always recommend people go to Amman. I think that there's such a wide variety of things to see. You know, there were some incredible mosques that we went to. We went to the Sultan's Mosque. Fascinating architecture. You know, it, uh, as Westerners, as an as a non-Muslim, you can only visit at certain types times of day. So you can't go during the normal prayers. But the benefit of that is that when we visited it, it was largely empty. It's the, the, you know, so there's, there's cultural things like that. And then you can go out into the desert and then there's dunes. We went to a a shipyard, which was amazing. Uh, There's just so much. A link to Jake and his great pics, plus that selfie in show notes. Phil, what's travel news? All right. A bit of a serious stuff. In my role as a travel safety expert, I've been asked by several news agencies just really recently if I think the Dominican Republic is safe to visit. This follows a number of uh, so-called mysterious deaths of American visitors in recent months. I think it's 11 all up in the past year. So here's my take on it, Okay. We sell travel insurance here, so we've got data on what happens to people when they travel all over the world. And I've got to say, 11 deaths out of 2.5 million visitors is not an unexpected number. It's sad and it's tragic, but, you know, it's not un- unexpected. Uh, a lot of those you can put down to, you know, so-called natural causes. You know, people have heart attacks when they travel. It happens. But... 
there have been a disturbing number of illnesses among visitors that I suspect may be linked to tainted alcohol. A few people have reported getting sick after drinking at a bar or from the minibar in their room. I don't think this is deliberate targeting of tourists. It's not drink spiking with the intention of, you know, robbing them. I suspect what's happening is what we've seen previously in Mexico and in Bali, backyard distilling of spirits uh, so that, you know, that stuff gets added to the brand name labelled alcohol that gets served over the bar. Obviously, when you make it in the backyard, it's cheaper, so the profits that you make from the drinks you sell over the bar are much, much higher. But there's a problem. If you're distilling spirits in your backyard, a difference in the temperature of one degree during that process, a certain part of that process, you won't get alcohol, you'll get methanol. Ooh, that's the one. Which is, you know, very toxic and very poisonous. So I think that is what is happening there. I don't think it's a malicious, deliberate targeting of tourists. Can I ask this? Yeah. If you're getting a drink from your minibar, would you not be looking for something that's sealed or unsealed? Yeah, no, well, I mean, it's a problem. I mean, that's the thing to do. Only drink, because if you're distilling alcohol in your backyard, you're probably, you know, doing that sort of dodgily. So you're not going to be able to reseal a bottle in the way it's supposed to be done when it leaves the manufacturer. So where possible make sure you see the spirits that you're being served being taken from a bottle that you watch being opened okay, and the seal being broken. That gets difficult, of course, because if you're in a bar, they've got them on the dispensers that are already open, or if you're in a busy nightclub, they're not going to open a new bottle just for, yeah. just for you. So that's going to be difficult to do. So drink beer or wine. <laughs> <laughs> Responsibly. Yeah, and, and also try and keep a bit of perspective about it as well. I mean, two and a half million visitors, American visitors a year on only a handful of people. Now, it, it's a problem, but I don't think it's a massively widespread problem problem. Something a little bit lighter? Yeah? Okay. What's lighter than drinking? (laughs) Okay, this is my idea of a flight from hell. A flight from London's Gatwick Airport just a couple of days ago, heading to Vancouver, um, had to be delayed because a plague of cockroaches started falling from the overhead lockers. Snakes on a plane. Well, cockroaches (laughs) on a plane started falling in people's laps. And the Flight attendants are again, can you kill this? People are squishing bugs. <laughs> and then they had to bring the pest exterminators on. The plane got delayed by seven hours and then the pilots ran out of, you know, flying time. So everybody, reach. I know. So everybody, you know, got offloaded and they had to go the next day. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. If that doesn't put you off, I don't know what will. Thanks. That's and that's right. travel news? Yes, it is. Well, it's diverse, as we actually, as we like to do in each Destination episode. Stephanie Ditzar features in a new book called The New Outsiders, A Creative Life Outdoors. It's excellent. And it's she's there because she's doing something fairly unusual, Phil, exploring mountain trails on a unicycle. <laughs> it's funny because it, looking from the outside, it might seem like something very unusual, but to me it seems like something that evolved very naturally. Um, I started unicycling just riding on the street as a kid when I was eight and um, then joined a club in my town. We uh, went to competitions as a group, but the competitions were inside in the gym. They were more like figure skating. It's uh, music and then you do some skills that you learned and try to look nice. (laughs) When most of my um, friends from the club stopped riding around their teenage years, I never had the idea of quitting, and so I continued. And um, 
Then later on, I was still going to competitions. And that's mostly because I started going to international competitions where I met this amazing international unicycling community. From then on, there really was no way back because it's such a great community. But how did you get the idea of unicycle mountain biking? Mm -hmm. So for one world championships that were in New Zealand, my friends and I went there to explore the country before and after the competitions. And we brought some off-road unicycles. And it was the first time for me to actually do that. And then we drove around the country, explored the the country by unicycles, which was actually super nice because uh, it's a great way to um, go and see more than you would when you walk. But um, it's super slow and not as fast as biking. So you get your chance to um, look at the landscape also. And from then on, all I was interested was uh, in was riding in the mountains. And the added advantage, of course, is that you've got your hands free while you're doing it. Kind of. Um, <laughs> for, for mountain unicycling, uh, we have a brake. That's the handle is mounted just below the saddle. All right. And so you have one hand free, actually. But you use that to keep your balance. It might look like you have your hands free, but you're actually quite busy. Obviously, there's a technique in riding a unicycle. But how have you adapted that to, you know, going down mountain tracks in it when i ride in the mountains especially exposed or more technical trails um i'm well aware of my abilities and i i will only do what i can do more than 100 percent that i'm so sure i will do it um and not fall whereas when i ride in a more not easier but um not as exposed terrain i can do more risky maneuvers or learn something new because when i fall it's not as bad. I mean, I might fall on my hands or, or fall on my arm, but I won't actually fall down the cliff. <laughs> Do you fall off much? Um, yes, actually. Um, it's very rare that you just, like in contrast to mountain biking, where you just ride down the trail and hardly ever get off. In mountain unicycling, you will, you will actually ride and then probably fall off a lot at the first try. If it's a technical trail, then you just go back up and try it again. Um, it's not really about riding the trail in the whole single take also because it's very exhausting um it's more about um clearing the sections that you wanted to clear and set yourself up to clear um like the more challenging ones so we actually do fall a lot but that's part of the learning process um what have the reactions been as you've passed not fellow mountain unicyclists but <laughs> um, perhaps other hikers uh, hikers or mountain uh, bikers what's their reaction people overall react very positive but they sometimes can't believe their eyes and are out of words um, others who are more into mountain sports are really amazed and usually they say wow this is amazing how can you even you know mountain bikers for example who who struggle to ride trails on two wheels, they can't believe that we're riding them on one wheel. A lot of people say, hey, I've seen this on the internet. I've seen some videos. And then a lot of the time we'll say, oh, that's probably our video. <laughs> Where's your favorite place to ride? My favorite place to ride is the Austrian Alps in general, I would say. They have a really good network of trails that are not too easy. Um, I've traveled to many places around the world just to be a little disappointed that the trails are made for everyone, meaning they're really easy. <laughs> and so in the Alps, it's, it's really nice because um, they have a lot of single trails, a lot of actually quite hard and sometimes dangerous trails. And so it's more like you are getting the responsibility to take care of yourself and assess your, the risk that you want to take. And that makes the trails more interesting. Well, how would you describe yourself as a traveler with a unicycle and a tent <laughs> backpack? I usually try to not make a lot of plans, but just go with the flow when I arrive at the 
wherever I'm going. I usually try to avoid other people. Does that sound bad? <laughs> I, uh, I, I like um, just solitude in nature with my friends, if they are there. Just goof around and feel like we're all alone in this vast landscape. A nice thought, Stephanie. Uh, a link to her site, which features amazing video, plus a link to the book, is in show notes, of course. Yep. We met Sarah Duff in an earlier episode chatting about 4 by 4 in Namibia. Now, Sarah must love a bit of a road trip because this time we hear about driving in a month. I'm a road tripper for sure. It's one of my favorite ways to explore a country. Um, I love independent travel. And for me, driving, seeing landscapes change, checking out small little places that maybe aren't in the guidebooks, um, going camping, getting off the beaten track. Um, yeah, I think these are the, this is why I love road tripping. And um, Oman is a particularly good country for road tripping. And it's quite, a, it's quite an adventure to explore. In what respect is it a good country for road tripping? The landscapes are pretty spectacular. Um, there's quite a lot of diversity. Oman is a very dry country and a lot of it is desert, but there's quite a lot of diversity. So there's interesting little villages. There's uh, date palm plantations. There's these little oases that you can swim in. Uh, there's an interesting coastline, very rugged mountains that you can hike in. So there's a lot to explore and see. What about the logistics, if we can just go back to hiring the car? How difficult was that? And do you have any tips for people that would be thinking of, of, of looking at this country now that we've, we're exposing it before anyone really knows? Yeah, uh, hiring a car is pretty simple. There's a few car hire companies. We actually hired our car from our guest house owner. Um, a friend of ours had stayed at the guest house and put us in touch with um, this wonderful guy, Ali, and we stayed with him and then rented a Suzuki Jeep from him. And we also rented camping equipment from him. But there are a few companies where you can rent a 4x4 and you can rent all of the camping equipment that you need. Um, so you can get a rooftop tent, shade, cooler box, grill, um, all of that stuff. And driving in Oman is really easy. We bought a SIM card at the airport, so we used Google Maps to get around. Um, petrol stations are everywhere. Petrol's very cheap. People were very friendly and helpful. If ever we were lost, um, people were very happy to help. So it's an incredibly safe and easy country to rent a car and, and drive around in. Well, speaking of safety, we've debunked the myth that Oman is a dangerous place to visit just because it happens to be in whatever they call the Middle East. So you felt entirely safe the whole time? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think people, yeah, people <laughs> think of the Middle East and um, because of what they've seen on the news, they kind of think that every country is the same sort of safety level, I think. But Oman is particularly safe. It's probably one of the safest countries I've ever traveled in. It's the kind of place where people don't like lock their cars when they go into the supermarket and people don't lock their doors in their house. Our guest house was never locked. So you can leave stuff in your car and never worry about it. You can go for a swim and leave your camera and not worry about it. Um, yeah, in my experience, even traveling in Europe and in North America, it's yeah, really one of the safest places I've ever been to. So you talked about hiring camping equipment. What was it like finding a spot to camp and, and where did you end up? So you can camp almost anywhere 
were in Oman and Omanis love to camp. And on our first night of camping, it was actually the night of a public holiday, the night before a public holiday. And we were camping along the coast. We wanted to go camping along the coast and it was completely packed. We kind of had this idea of this wild coastline where we'd be the only ones around for miles. Um, but there were families everywhere. So we actually had to do a little bit of an adventurous um, four by four mission to find a spot to camp on. Um, but it's a really amazing thing that you can camp wherever you go and just bring your food with you and your firewood and make a barbecue and just camp under the stars. Now, I know you said that it's, it's dry. Uh, there's a lot of desert. We spoke earlier in the podcast to um, Rama, who is from Oman, and she says the one thing that, that visitors or travellers don't really understand is there's some, actually some good diving. And in the article that you've written, you talk about snorkelling. Yeah, we, we did a snorkelling trip um, from Muscat, from the capital, and we went out to the Damaniat Islands, um, which is a marine reserve. Um, it was about 45 minutes boat ride from Muscat and we had a wonderful half day snorkeling trip. Um, the visibility wasn't amazing, but there were lots of fish and we saw lots of turtles as well. And I love seeing turtles when snorkeling or diving is such a treat. Can you leave us with some tips for, I guess, probably women in particular who are traveling to a country like Oman to respect the local culture in terms of covering up? Will you tell me I haven't been? Um, yeah, I think that I think it's a good idea to be respectful of the local culture. There, I did see some Western uh, female tourists who were wearing, wearing wearing very short shorts or short dresses, and to me, that feels uh, pretty rude, uh, personally. Um, so, for women um, wearing long pants or a long skirt, um, something that's below your knees and covering up your your chest and your shoulders is is generally the respectful way to go. And then if you're visiting a mosque, then it's um, you need to wear a headscarf and cover up your arms and wear something that goes below your ankle. Um, so it's it's not hard to cover up. And I think, I think it's important that we do that because we're in somebody else's country and it's just a nod of respect to another culture. It sounds like a country that should be on everyone's list. For sure. It's still pretty under the radar. Um, so it's a good time to go now. All right, that wraps up this episode on the World Nomads podcast. But if you can't get enough and want to be inspired by another incredible destination, you might want to try out our episode on Panama. Well, Panama is the only country in the world where you can see the sunrise uh, on the Pacific and set on the Atlantic. It's the only place in the entire world where you can do this. And that can be done um, at the top of Volcan Baru, uh, which is a volcano in Boquete, which is a small town in the west of Panama, which is known for its coffee plantations and the Los Quetzales Trail for spotting quetzals. And that's pretty much the only place that you can do this. You'll find that episode in show notes and you can get all the World Nomads podcasts through your favourite podcast app. And you can ask Alexa and Google to play the World Nomads podcast. Phil, to get in touch. Please email us at podcast at worldnomads.com. Next time we see you, we'll meet an amazing nomad who's travelled the world with his beloved dog. We have to point that out very clearly because he does a lot with this dog, doesn't he? I know. This is like the best travelled dog I've ever heard about. (laughs) Yep. It's the next Amazing Nomads episode and it was all inspired tragically by the passing of his father. We'll see you then. Okay, bye. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.